1: It's Roxanne Durhodge. Thanks for tuning in again. Today, I have a colleague, Dr. Rick Cernick, uh, here with us, um, who has taken his time away from all his busy teaching and marking and uh, end-of-term things. Uh, So, Dr. Cernick, thanks so much for being here with us. My, My pleasure. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about him because um, I've known um, of you. I'm going back. Well, I'm talking about, I'm going to, I'm going to age myself, but about 30 years ago oh. when I started the in the field, we were involved in uh, EAP councils way back when. I don't know if you yeah. remember that. Yeah, I was Toronto. involved in the Toronto EAP Council. I think you were involved with the Hamilton EAP Correct. Council at that time. Good memory. And uh, so that's when I started to kick around in the field and ever since, obviously, um, have gone on to do a lot of different things, working with a bigger provider, Mona Chappelle, and you've uh, gone on and continue to do really great work at the university. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, Dr. Sernick. He has a um, master's and PhD. Uh, he's a registered social worker. Um, he's a professor at the School of Social Work at King's University College, has written and edited 15 books. Wow, that's amazing, including just say... No, A Counselor's Guide to Psychoactive, Drugs, Homelessness, Housing, and Mental Health, uh, Practicing uh, Social Work Research, Case Studies for Learning, The Drug Paradox, and Responding to the Oppression of Addiction, and I'd like to talk a bit about that. And you've done over 200 peer uh, review articles and books, and you've spoken at over 200 uh, conferences and workshops. And um, you've been involved as part of the research team that have received over uh, $3.8 million in funding and, in, and has been the recipient of the King's College University and McMaster University Continuing Education of the Year, uh, Teacher of the Year Award, as, a, as well as the Hugh Mellon Excellence in Research Award. Wow. You've been
0: busy. I try to keep myself, I try to keep myself busy because there's lots of work out there that needs being done, right? Which is what your listeners appreciate.
1: So Dr. Sernick, let's, let's just kind of jump into it. And obviously you're out there, you're teaching, you're researching, you're writing And uh, about mental health and addictions. So oftentimes I think it's come to the forefront. We're recognizing that the World Health Organization is saying it's the number one issue we need to be concerned about. It's increasing. We're seeing it over and over again. Unfortunately, um, with your young adults are coming up, there's lots more concerns. Why do you think we're seeing an increase at such a level with with the mental health and addictions around us?
0: Yeah, I think the demise of um, human civilization was the fax machine. So if you go back and you're old, like I am, um, <laughs> there was a point in time when you worked and you got a phone call from a boss, you got a complaint from someone in the community and you had time to respond in writing and think and reflect upon this. And I don't, joke about the fax machine and suddenly one day the fax machine showed up around 1985 my office and suddenly my boss was immediately accessible Mm -hmm. is that the world's immediately accessible and so you need to think now in context of mental health and addiction about the human brain right i'm an evolutionist so i believe that we've been evolving over millennia and when we move from daylight savings time right to standard time there's this big shift people can't sleep there's more traffic accidents there's all disruption our brain literally hasn't caught up to shifting an hour. Our brains haven't caught up to the advent of electricity yet. We're just sort of catch up to electricity in 24-hour daylight. And so now suddenly in one generation, well, in my generation, we've gone from typewriter to fax machine to PC to internet to the phone that most of us have in our pockets has more power and more ability than the computer that took Apollo to the moon. So in one generation, our brains have had to change and adapt to a constant inflow of information, some good, some important, some irrelevant, but constant information, and we just have not had the chance to adapt and change to it. So what happens when you're constantly taking information from work, when the demands of work are 24-7, when the seven days a week, when I go to bed at 1.30 uh, in the morning, and by 8.30 in the morning, I respond to emails already, it is just overwhelming for the human body. So the biggest element, I think, not just millennials, but those of us are older as well, is that the pace of work has changed in a way that not even the Industrial Revolution was equivalent to. And so in terms of physical health, well-being, taking time to simply breathe, because most North Americans don't know how to breathe. We're all top lung breathers. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, in a very quick element is that the pace of work has changed so dramatically in such a short period of time that we've not been able to Physically and psychologically adapt to it. Nor will we in the interim, because again, evolution is slow, but technology is fast.
1: Hmm. So, and and it's getting more rapid as we go, right? Like, I mean, everything is instant in this day and age. Like, you know, when when you're sending someone an email, and you know, within you're you're off to. To say, do something or see another client or, you know, and you're out. And then an hour later, you have that person asking you where the response is. Like even our ability to to wait, you know, has increased. It's it's, it's lessened. Like text immediate, even email now is getting to the point where people get ready and patient.
0: Yeah. So an hour, right? An hour is the end of the world if someone doesn't respond to an hour. As I said, back in 1984, if I could respond in three days, I was a good employee. You're right. If I don't get back in 30 minutes, what am I doing with my time? And so the expectation of this immediacy is a big deal. Uh, So in my counseling classes, I'm working with social work students in terms of helping people with addiction, mental health issues. The biggest um, point I now make is simply to be present with people, is Mm -hmm. just to sit and listen and to give them some space because that's what we sort of lost. I mean, look what we're doing right now. We're doing a podcast, right? Like two years ago, what were podcasts, right? And now suddenly they are the way to convey information and they're very convenient. And that's a difficulty because email and texting and podcast technology makes life much easier and simpler when it's functional. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what happens when your technology goes down? I mean, we just look at the ransomware issues that hit uh, life labs, right? It changes our whole business structure. So mm-hmm. the other pressure, of course, is to keep up with technology, continue to invest in technology, which then makes it a, a huge cost outlay for organizations and a con- constant new source of information. So in terms of me knowing about social work and addictions and workplace wellness, I now have to know about technology so I can do the other parts of my job. So there's a lot more expectation, I think, on us as well to be well-versed in different areas, Roxanne, than it was, again, when I began my career in the field.
1: So, you know, let's go back to what you're talking about, the evolution. Our brain... The technology is so quick that our brain is trying to catch up, right? And like you're saying, we're not disconnecting. If you think of a lot of people now, we have these, you know, the the thing about, uh, you know, the Blu-ray for looking protection against screens and lots of things. That I'm thinking, you know, when I was growing up, like I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago, my mother would kick us outside and say, "Okay, guys, come back in when it's time for a snack," or you know, or whatever. So we were constantly surrounded by green, and we were playing, and we were. You know, having conflict and figuring out how to make it better, all that stuff now is gone, right? It's, it's literally gone.
0: It's a fascinating because one of the difficulties we're finding is some, and if, I mean, I'm talking about some, not all, younger students, young individuals who will be joining the workforce the next few years, is because of this disconnection from sort of each other and from nature and society, is that they're having a hard time communicating they're having a hard time being face-to-face. So what that means is that when you're an employer and you've got a new employee, you're trying to correct them or give them new directions, they're not used to getting a lot of direct face-to-face feedback. And so that's a new thing as well. I mean, the notion of telephone etiquette, which is funny for you and I, but I mean, teaching telephone etiquette when you're used to texting and emailing is a skill set. My young son, I'm not that young more 25-year-old, finally moved on his own, finally went off to school, got his own apartment, and had to give his landlord checks. He said, Dad, how do I write a check? He'd never written a check in his lifetime, never needed to, to, to converse in commerce, right? And so, again, what people of our generation, who tend to be in more leadership positions, don't acknowledge is that this younger generation has these wonderful skills, but there's also deficits which consider deficits because they've never had to engage in these behaviors. Mm-hmm. The extension of that is, as you say, there's less of this growing up outside where you'll learn how to deal with your conflicts, where you learn to develop your sense of assertiveness. And when you're all distance, it's easier to get into a screaming war via internet because there's no immediate ramifications, but you can't have the behavior in a workplace because there are immediate ramifications.
1: For sure. So you have the over, um, overactive mind, Yes. And then you have uh, the practical element of not practicing to connect. Like, I mean, I'm of, of the older generation. When I, people get on the phone with me, I, you know, I still use the phone all the time. I go, you know, here's the deal. I, I don't want to talk on the phone. Can we get together? Because I, for me, because that's yeah. what I'm accustomed to doing. And yeah. obviously trying to do that with the younger generation is a little bit more difficult. You're like, well, can't we jump on a Zoom call? Can we do a Skype? You know, whatever. But it's, it's so true. I go back to the traditional things. Yeah. Now, even in our fast-paced fa- world, uh, even the older generation is having trouble <clears throat> in quiet in their mind. Well,
0: absolutely, I mean, and literally, and I hate to say it, as I'm aging, is I think, I just don't recall things as well. And the other point in time is how important is it, as you say, to sit down and have a coffee with somebody, to me is that it's relationship building, right? It's how you get to know someone. And when you build relationships, it's easier to have conflict. So you and I, again, have known each other, our paths have crossed for 30 years. So we're having a discussion and something goes south. It's not that we don't have a history together. We don't know each other's background professionalism. So it's easier, and conflict's never easy, but it's easier for us to either move beyond it or not get hung up on it, right? And so you don't have a lot of time getting to know individuals, building relationships, I understand people's foibles and eccentricities in my case I get old I'm no longer strange I'm not eccentric <laughs> once you get to know those elements they're not almost forgiven but okay if that's what this person is I know that's what they're like and if I can just move beyond this we can move forward with our deal move forward with our conversation mm-hmm. but if you only have someone through a zoom or a skype or a text or some emails is that you don't understand those personality traits and it's also easier to lose yourself and not be as reflective about your strength And where you have more trigger points in terms of what upsets you or what just turns you your mind off. So, um, absolutely, I think there's that. Then there's that. There is a generation gap now between people who are technological immigrants like we are. We're new to technology, Mm -hmm. and people like my children who've grown up with flip phones, smartphones, and now you know Instagram, Zoom, all these elements. It's part of their inherent almost DNA. Whereas for us, we have to think about it. Mm -hmm. So we are we are of two different cultures
1: so let's let's pivot to that whole element of what we're knowing that anxiety and depression is is growing at a rapid now employers you know gone are the days i used to think of when i started back in the eap world where you know people you would have you know employee assistance programs and companies were just kind of having it at the bottom to say we have this resource uh, for people to get assistance now it's a given that most organizations are looking at it because it's costing them so much money between their incidental absences, the presenteeism, the, the absenteeism, um, their short-term claims. And, and of course, you know, between short-term and long-term, if people go into long-term, the, the, the vast costs. So yes. people always think about um, the element of when they hear the issue of um, addiction or mental health they always think really really sick like you know but they don't think of the entire spectrum so i want you to talk about that continuum from mental well-being all the way up to the continuum of mental health and addictions
0: yeah so um again a good thing um is right mental health no one talked about now it's constantly being discussed so the question you have as a researcher is, is this a new phenomenon? And there certainly is different stressors now than there ever was If we've just been talking about. Or are we for the first time welcoming the conversation? No longer embarrassing. I had okay. lunch with a colleague the other day who was a very important person, well-educated, and the work had just overwhelmed the individual. And so they said, I'm going, I'm not well. I went to the hospital for mental health treatment as if they had their appendix out. And so that has changed as well, too, Mm -hmm. is now we are going earlier in the process, which is wonderful. EAP has been around now and well-established in Canada for half a century. And so they're not this strange thing that you're not worried about losing your job. In the early days, there are employee assassination programs, no employee (laughs) assistance programs. And so we've got that other element as well. Are there more mental health problems? And so you can say yes, or we can say, as you're indicating, are people now less hesitant to hide them? more likely to come early in the process, have different resources, and the lovely thing is that about the media is now you have these, I won't call them role models, but you have these prominent individuals in uh, media, in movies, um, music, who themselves say, you know, I've gone to a rehabilitation program, I'm taking a break from touring, I'm not going to be in a movie this year because I've got to take care of myself and my family. So that has also occurred in parallel with this increasing stress from technology. So we've got interesting phenomenon occurring. Certainly in the workplace, I make the joke that no one is normal. If you actually know what the human brain is like, we've got these 50 different primary neurotransmitters that are running through our brains that balance us, and they literally are determining our mood, determining our uh, aggression, our affect, our relationship, all those things are prominent. And so if you have too much dopamine, enough serotonin. Before we didn't know any about this, but now we have medication that again can balance you. And it's not a shame to be taking medication. It's I've got influenza, I've got diabetes, I've got anxiety. So now we've got some medical aids, when we've got minor issues that are obviously not overwhelming. So that's a wonderful aspect as well now too. So we can go forward, you can deal with it. And I've got all sorts of colleagues in the helping professions That because they're helping professions recognize the fact that hey genetically i was born this way it's just like taking my insulin every day the difficulty becomes again there's still shame there's still stigma in these areas and so what happens if you don't go you don't have a supportive workplace well then the problem becomes more severe you start getting into short-term disability long-term disability and those individuals those organizations that have lots of long-term disability claims i'd ask them to look at what their organizational structure is and I'd ask them to look at what they're doing in terms of promoting mental health at an earlier stage for individuals. It's, it's not when or if. Uh, so it's not when, it's if. I actually don't know anyone in my lifetime that would not benefit from counseling, mm-hmm. doing with issues mm-hmm. with your family, issues, issues of relationship, issues with your children, issues in the workplace. I mean, how do you get to the age of 60 in my life without having had numerous losses and tragedies? The same thing now, when you're 20 years old, what may seem like a minor issue to someone at 60, you've only lived 20 years. So this is a big monumental shift in your life. So the notion of what's major and what's minor, it's really relative to the individual. I'll tell you a story really, in my career. I was working with the Toronto Fire Department, and I was doing some training with them. And one, off, one firefighter came up to me and said, I don't know what happened. And Now we'd call it PTSD. We didn't have the language back then but he was in a fire situation and he was going to rescue somebody. One of his colleagues gotten to that person instead. He was coming down the ladder. So he wasn't in risk. The individual had been saved. His colleague was safe and he froze on the ladder. And it was just what had happened there because he'd been in so many fires, so many situations and suddenly he, they literally had to help him off the ladder. So we also don't know what to you and I would be a minor. Called, well, there's no risk, there's no fire, there's no danger. And you can't walk down any longer. I mean, it's high rise ladder. And, so again that individualization so we ask about a continuum and people do have serious mental health issues they'll lose a loved one um there'll be a a car accident where their child will die at 30 and will just spin them off so there's all these incidental issues that that you need eap support for you need counseling support for there's biological elements that you have to blame your parents for you can't control whatsoever and then there's that accumulation of just life sticking to you right Mm -hmm. and again we're now looking at individuals in their 60s and 70s, typically out of the workforce, who have secondary addiction issues, because they've suffered so much loss in their lifetime, and you're shaking your head, you appreciate this, so much loss in their lifetime, that they don't even realize they're turning to alcohol and drugs, but the loss of job, the loss of ability, the loss of family, the loss of loved one, loss of relationship, all these losses build up. But those can build up when you're 35 and 45, just as easy when you're 65.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: so I mean there is I mean it's a wonderful question because the answer is life produces mental health issues mm. we take work home with us and we take home to work with us and that interaction if you've got no control or stress in both areas then makes you more vulnerable to the technology and the stress and the pressure and the ongoing information flow so the answer, I mean, you start with your question with it. The answer is, if you don't have an employee assistance program, if you're not constantly asking about employees wellness, then you are asking to have short term, long term disability issues in your workplace.
1: So oh, that's an interesting point about, like you said, secondary addiction. So talk a little bit about that because I know when I was would look at data for um, issues with substance-related issues at work. Generally, yeah. it was not an addiction. It was generally people would be misusing, to your point, to to be able to cope with life's issues, and then we would get them to kind of address the the situational um, stressors, and then they would go, they were able to go back to a certain level where it didn't impact different uh, relationships in their life. So definitely. The addictions piece, obviously, that's the part that scares everyone. Yeah. Right? Because I think it's kind of like, you know, we think of the the addiction as something so separate and so horrific. But really, anybody, to your point, could get to the point where they're misusing substance because they're not having the proper strategies or or coping mechanisms to be able to deal with the stickiness of life that, that you described.
0: Yeah. And that's exactly it. And so there certainly are people who are more biologically... Um, at risk. They've got family histories of substance abuse. Again, there's some brain chemistry that's not quite balanced. And so if I'm having three alcoholic beverages, and they're having three alcoholic beverages, I'll get started feeling a little bit tipsy, but they would then just sort of escalate. So yeah, we want to acknowledge the fact that some people, it's biology. But for most individuals, um, as you nicely summarized there, it's the combination of aspects. In our society, I mean, the facts that I say, let's go have a drink, I mean, just off the bat, everyone means, let's go have a beer, a glass of wine, let's go have a shot. We're not thinking, let's go have a cranberry juice, let's go have a drink of water. I mean, that notion, it's so encapsulated. Um, the slogan I'm using now, so the model I'm now using in my class is, are you the fish that sees the water you swim in? Mm. Is that, so I ask my students to look at the movies they're watching, listen to songs they're listening to, and just how much is alcohol and drugs ingrated in that um, culture, so you don't even think about it. So it's not just a coping mechanism, it's just a day-to-day reality of our life. Let's go, for, it's Christmas time, let's go for a drink, right? Let's mm-hmm. go for eggnog. Eggnog's got rum in it, right? I mean, all these <laughs> little subtleties. And so it's very easy when you're with someone to not acknowledge the fact that their substance use is increasing because they're basically doing the same behavior you are. That's normal because you're doing it, but it's just creeping up and creeping up a little bit because again they don't have those other supports so work is stressed they may have gone through divorce their children may be away at school and they're lonely they may have loss of parents and everything i just listed has happened to one of my students in the last two weeks wow. so all these elements, yeah, all these elements happen to individuals and so when alcohol is part of our normal culture and it's what we do to celebrate relax but also cope it's so easy just to increase that um We know there's lots of anxiety and stress. So to go to your physician and say, look, I've got anxiety. Can I have um, some sort of medication? Absolutely. But you add that medication to your alcohol. You add it to, my mother just had um, a fall and injured herself. So she's got some um, codeine sitting around her house. So now you've got your prescription medicin, you've got your alcohol, and you've got a legitimate uh, pain masking agent. And suddenly, one plus one plus one is not three, it's five. And as you say, that pattern behavior of drug use starts becoming the central organizing principle of your life. But it's really about your injury, your loss of your child, the loss of a relationship all adding up. And we see with addiction is that other coping mechanisms, going for coffee with a friend, you know, talking to people at work, going to yoga class, going to play basketball, those drift away because the drug use is easy. I mean, go to yoga, I mean get up, put your sweat, I go to seniors or no, get sweatpants on, go go hang out, lie around for a while, which is wonderful, get back in the cold, oh, it's minus 10 degrees, out. I don't want to go to the cold, I'll have a bourbon instead. So mm-hmm. because alcohol and other drugs are so easy as a coping mechanism, we can gravitate to them, because no one says a second thought about it. Like I said, you and I went after a podcast, we were not virtual, we went for a drink, no one think twice about it.
1: Right, absolutely. Yeah,
0: but I go for a drink at lunch with you, then go for one after work, then I go for one after dinner. Suddenly, it's not just a drink any longer.
1: So, and it becomes a, a creeping effect. And before you know it, the person realizes that they're at they're, they're not able to control it anymore. And they're going home, maybe after you've had the, the one drink with them at dinner and they're having a couple more and then they're staying up later and then it's a vicious cycle. So, yeah. So when, when we look at kind of the issue with mental health, it is definitely on the increase. And obviously, the maladaptive element and the social norms associated with, hey, let's just have a Christmas drink. People are kind of going to be using that much more.
0: Yeah. And this is a, this is a high risk. And then, of course, we go from Christmas with friends and family, which is a celebratory time, unless you not don't have lots of friends and family. And then it becomes instead of a positive affect, a negative affect, and then we roll right into New Year's, right? And so I've got I've got a friend of mine, I don't drink much alcohol, but I drink on occasion. I have a friend of mine who's not a member of AA, but has not drank for 30 years. And when he and I go out and they say, yeah, we'll have a couple of, of pops, right? Everyone's having beers around us to kind of look, what's wrong with you guys? <laughs> right. Um the question becomes, well, there's nothing wrong with us. We just don't choose to have alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it's, it's fitting in, it's expectations going towards New Year's. And because we associate alcohol with celebration, We tend to miss the fact that people are using it when their their mood is down, when they're trying to cover up things or ignore things as well, too. So it gets blurry then, um, again, with those cultural norms you mentioned.
1: So let's, um, for the employers listening, we talked definitely. um, Sounds like it's, it's more than just, you know, the things that we can put in place, right? The health and wellness strategy, the health coaching, all those things. You really, your culture has to support one of what we're going back to, which we started to talk about, which is just going back to that human element of uh, connection. And, yeah. you know, I think the busyness of work and expectations and, and people are working remotely and there's so much going on that we're really the basics of sitting across from someone and checking in and saying, hey, Rick, how are you? Well, like, what's new? What's happened? What are you looking forward to next year? Those Those basic things are being lost. So how can employers kind of keep that, in mind as they develop strategy for mental health and wellness in the workplace?
0: The, um, the best boss I ever had, now name him, because he was the best boss I ever had. His name was Abe Friesen. And this was back when we worked at the Addiction Research Foundation. So mm-hmm. it wasn't business, but our job was creating community health. We did emergency counseling. So we had some paperwork. but We had some uh, unexpected, uncontrollable parts of our work. And so it was quite a, a mixed um, job. And Abe was wonderful because every day, we would have coffee, as a, and we're a small unit. We don't have coffee every day. And I don't drink coffee. I work at Dictionary Research Foundation. I don't do any drugs at all. And so we'd have. So I sit there and watch my colleagues drink coffee, usually decaf, a coffee. And what Abe was doing every day was checking in. I mean, it be 10 minutes. And so not rushing off to do an email because there's no email at that point in time. But he just wanted to see how everyone was doing. And so we also have something now called Manage by Walking Around. And my partner just retired, and she's, again, she was another good very good leader because she was my partner uh, but she basically knew that if her staff was not feeling well they couldn't be productive mm-hmm. so even though she's a lawyer so even though she's a lawyer she spent part of her day doing sort of check-ins and how you do them mm-hmm. and so as a leader it took more time from her there was certainly a cost for her but that cost in building relationship with her staff saved her all sorts of aggravation because when someone's having a good day or a bad day, she would know. When there's a crisis in office, she had built relationships so the person, instead of saying, oh, I'm fine, or trying to hide a mistake, would say, yeah, I did this, knowing that she would be supportive of them as opposed to criticizing them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So those elements of, you know, if you're in a leadership position, and I know this is gonna cost you time, but it's like prevention work, right? We put the time in early, we save our time down the road.
1: So prevention, yes, it may take a bit more of your time, but if I think if, if you look at it from an ROI perspective, you are going to be saving yourself a whole lot down the road because then people are, yeah, we know life's going to happen. To your point, all of us, I, I'm in my yep. 50s now, and I, I, you know, we've all been through things where we've been stressed or down or whatever. And that tumbling weed that I often say is if you don't do it up early and you leave it, then you're going to see the incidental absences or you're going to see the person trying to kind of, like you said, go off and get some medication, but don't get the the behavioral kind of uh, piece taken care of. And and then it becomes a revolving door. Right. And that's costing that particular employee costs a whole lot more. That potentially the time and, and the potential money that you might be doing upstream, in the long run, I'm thinking to say your ROI is in prevention versus uh, the unwell employee.
0: And the difficult part for organizations, and I appreciate this having done cost evaluations, you, it's, it's virtually impossible to see what your cost is in prevention work because you don't know what happened. One of the the best things that happened in the EAP field, when we saw utilization rates go from like four or five percent in companies to six, eight, and ten, they go, Oh my goodness, we got more problems. My response was, no, you've always had those problems. People are just now dealing with them as opposed to letting them manifest and get worse. So yeah, if your EAP utilization is two or three percent, you're doing a real bad job because people are hiding the problems, not coming forward. So again, I work in the nonprofit sector, right? So it's easier for me to say, oh, you know, it's not money, but it is in the fact that we know in the addiction treatment field, for every dollar we put into treatment, we save $6. And that's in treatment. So imagine what happens if we didn't have to treat people and stop the problem earlier, how much money we'd be saving for organizations and for our healthcare system
1: absolutely it's, uh, it's it's definitely worth it and i think it's you know it goes back to the basics of connection right like you know yes. you know if you look at the misuse of substances or those or whatever it is whether it's substance or it's anger it's arbitrations or it's you know conflict in the workplace a lot of it's because people aren't feeling like you said validated heard to your partner's point if you check in with people it's easier to have that tough conversation because there's been an issue with on a report versus if I haven't talked to you and I have to now come down and talk to you about something that, because a customer is complaining, it makes it a little bit more difficult because then I'm not wanting to have that conversation for you, with you versus if I have the relationship, then I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I've not been focused. I have had X, Y, Z going on. And then I'm a little bit more open to discuss really what, what, what I could do to um, be more present at work.
0: Absolutely. You're right on Roxanne. That summarizes it very, very nicely.
1: So Dr. Cernick, I know you and I could probably talk for a very long time. <laughs> so for anybody that's wanting um, to connect with you or, um, you know, learn a little bit more about some of the things that we've been discussing, um, where can they reach you if they wanted to learn more or do you have a site or some places that they could read a bit more of on some of the books that you've written?
0: Yeah. So Rick Cernick, I'm at King's University College in London, Ontario. Um, my email is there, but I'll give it very slowly. It's r C S I E R N I at U W O dot My last name is Cernik. C S I E R N I K. King's University College School of Social Work. And as you've, if you've been watching me, I love to talk and I love to give advice. So if you've got a question, um, Roxanne, by all means, I'd be happy to help any of your clients or anyone watching the podcast and give them my two cents worth.
1: Okay. Well, thank you so much. So what did I take away? I took away that you know what. We need to recognize that the stresses related to our lives are sticky, like uh, uh, Dr. Sernick said. And the secondary um, presentation of addictions is existing in our organizations. So look for it and recognize addictions is one way that it's showing, but it's showing in other ways. And go back to some of the basics of taking the time to spend your monies up front, because my my tagline, uh, Dr. Sernick, is re- if if you spend your time with return on relationships, it's actually protects your ROI in uh, return on investments. So take the time, spend the time on prevention, because the earlier you get it um, upstream, you're going to minimize the amount of the people that will eventually need help anyway. And hopefully you make your place, a a place that you become an employer of choice and people want to come, they want to stay and they want to be connected. So thanks again. And uh, we'll chat with you soon.